Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 86 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. The bees are settling down for the long autumn and winter haul, but here at Beekeeping HQ there seems to be more than ever to sort. Stay tuned for the latest update on my beekeeping journey, including treatments, trucks and trailers. Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. So here we are, finally, I'm back on my feet and moving around again with some degree of ease. This recent bout of back pain and sciatica, particularly the sciatica, has been really quite troublesome and I really feel for anyone out there who suffers from back problems on a regular basis. It's, it's really not very pleasant. But I'm lucky in that it seems to be every couple of years or so, and at the moment it seems to hit during the quieter period of beekeeping over the autumn and winter months. So fingers crossed that that uh, might continue and not disrupt my normal beekeeping season. There's still lots to do here, but the timetable isn't quite so rigid, and I have been able to delay a number of jobs until now, where I'm back on my feet. I do still have to be quite cautious and I get a very strange numb feeling in my right foot. It's a bit like the after effects of being caught by stinging nettles. Once the pain of the sting is gone, you're left with that kind of tingling sensation. Well, that, that's exactly how it feels at the moment. But it's so much better than it was before and I'm so very grateful to be back in front of the computer and able to work again. I woke this morning to a crisp frost. It was... One of those misty, almost foggy mornings, a real sense of the colder days to come, I suspect, which I, actually I really enjoy. We are very lucky here in the UK to still enjoy a seasonal climate where we get the warm autumnal days that drift into the colder conditions of winter, through into the rush of life in spring and then onto the heat of summer, and so it goes round. We love talking about the weather here, don't we? It, it is, of course, a national pastime, but for beekeepers, it's so much more than just another rainy day. We worry about the last time we inspected and what should happen if we miss an inspection, or we sit and watch the cold, apparently lifeless hive in the middle of winter, hoping that we've done enough to see the colonies through to the next spring. I remember that sense of relief so clearly as several bees fly out of my first few hives on cleansing flights on days when a little warm winter sunshine allows them to actually get out and fly. It's at this time of the year that I question if I've done all I can to see my colonies through winter and into the next season. The mental checklist of all the various jobs that need to be done in order to give them the very best chance possible. This year has been somewhat challenging and I will have to adapt my routine a little, but I'm sure we'll get through okay and I'm sure the bees will be fine. Preparations actually started for winter way back in August. First up was the treatments for the Varroa mite. This year you will recall that I used Apivar, the thin strips that are placed two per hive hanging between the frames near the brood nest. It's amitraz, which is the active ingredient, but it can give rise to the development of resistance in the varroa, so it's important that it's removed at the appropriate time. This happened to fall a week or so ago, and I was so happy to have the help of Steph and Pete to travel around with me and clean out all of those strips. It's not a particularly difficult job, 
just remove the roof and the crown board, ease the strips away from the frames. Of course, they've been well and truly stuck down with wax and propolis, but a quick flick with the hive tool releases them easily enough. Gently pull the strips out so as not to cause any damage to the bees that may be in the general area, and particularly the queen, because if she's damaged now, there's little hope for that colony, and they must really be united with another. Removing the treatment strips also gives a chance to look down on the bees within and judge the size of the colony. As ever, we have a large variation of colony sizes. I wondered how Pete actually managed to get the crown board back on with some of them, such was their enormous size. Yet others seem to have reduced in size to just a few seams of bees, and I'm left wondering if they're large enough to see out the winter. We have united several colonies, so I think judging the remainder to be of sufficient size to survive will see us through to the spring with around 75 colonies, I think. I like to think that we'll have less than 10% losses over winter. 5% or less is my normal target. There are usually a couple of drone-laying colonies, and I always seem to have another two or three diminished to a size so small that they can't keep themselves warm enough and die out. And it's not always the smallest colonies that do this. Sometimes I've seen the largest of autumn colonies simply dwindle over the winter months to the point they simply can't survive, and yet the smallest of autumn colonies, the ones I'm thinking, I really should have united those, those ones seem to shrink to an optimum size for that colony and then survive right the way through to spring, growing rapidly once the willows are in flower. We head into the last months of this year with a higher than normal number of nukes. This came about because of the very poor early season mating. During the oilseed rape flow, we came up against quite a lot of swarming, and as a result decided to split a large number of colonies. More than half of those turned out to be drone-laying queens, and that really set me back significantly. So our summer work was not only attempting to build up the colonies we had previously split for honey but also creating new replacement nucleus colonies for the drone-laying queen ones. It's not at all difficult, but as I've said before, in order to produce bees and honey, you need lots of resources, and that's bees and nectar. It took quite an effort to get it sorted, but through my queen-rearing programme and the most excellent BS Honey 2-in-1 nuke boxes, we were able to produce a good number of queens to populate those three-frame nukes and then further develop six-frame nukes into overwinter colonies. When Pete and Steph were removing the treatments, it was obvious the polynukes were really strong, filled with bees, food and brood, and I have no doubt those will do very nicely this year. One of the great features of the BS Honey polynukes is the little bung that's fitted into the middle of the feeder, which allows you to leave the feeder in place for the duration of the winter, and if needed, remove the bung to allow the bees to move up and be fed fondant without disturbing them. It's genius, really. On the subject of feeding, most feeding should have been completed by now, and we took the opportunity of removing all our feeders at the same time as removing those treatment strips. This means all of our hives are now set up in their winter configuration. For those of you who still fret that you may have something wrong with the way your hives are set up, let me explain how I have mine set up and hopefully that will reassure you. Firstly, we have the nukes. All the wooden nukes have been fed and treated and with the exception of the poly nukes, have a floor, brood body, crime board and roof. The polynukes, as I mentioned earlier, have the addition of a feeder in place. 
This is not just the BS honey nukes, but also our Maysmore commercial poly nukes, which have also been excellent this year. But they don't have the fondant bunghole. What I tend to do with those is that if I need to feed fondant, I simply turn the poly feeder upside down, creating a cavity beneath and place the fondant directly onto the top bars of the brood frames. As for the full-size hives, let's talk about the national hives first. These I like to set up with a super of food in addition to the brood box, unless they happen to be on a double brood box, which is the case in a couple of instances. These I set up in the following way. Floor, super, brood box, crime board and roof. Notice there's no queen excluder. I remove the queen excluder from all colonies when the feeders go on. These are taken away to be cleaned and stored until required next spring. If you leave a queen excluder in place, there is a possibility that as the cluster of bees moves to access fresh food stores, the queen could become separated from the workers. This is only going to happen, of course, if you've added either a super or a second brood box, but I think it's good practice to remove the queen excluder and give it a clean anyway. I do know of beekeepers that place a spare super on top of the brood box, and this works equally as well for them, but not something that I like to do. Placing the super beneath the brood box helps in two ways, in my mind. Firstly, it lifts the brood nest higher in the stack and away from any cold drafts blowing around the bottom of the open mesh floor. And secondly, with the bees moving higher in the hive, the brood nest is naturally held at a higher, warmer part of the hive. And if you've swapped the brood box to the top position, the brood nest is retained in the brood box, making it easy to swap back down in the spring. If, on the other hand, you've placed a super above the brood box, you may find that the brood nest has migrated from the brood box to partially sit within the super as well, making the swap or the insertion of a queen excluder in spring more tricky. Not impossible, and we can each choose how we manage our bees, but for me, it makes sense to put the super beneath the brood box. That's just for the national hives, of course. For all my other hives, commercials, Langstroths, and now the 14 by 12 national deep hives too, I simply overwinter the bees on a single brood box. So each of these has a floor, brood box, crime board or cover board, depending on how you like to describe it, and a roof. I don't put the Varroa board in the open mesh floor, but leave them open to the elements. These only get inserted when I'm performing a Varroa count or treating with my oxalic acid sublimator. There are just a couple more jobs to perform before I feel totally set for winter, and that's fitting mouse guards where needed and wrapping the hives with chicken wire to protect against the green woodpecker where necessary. The mouse guards are fitted to hives whose entrance blocks are wide enough for mice to sneak in and play havoc with the brood frames over winter. I do have some colonies that have simple foam entrance blocks with a gap at one end, and these will definitely need protection. However, most of my entrance blocks are shallow enough to prevent mice from getting inside. I do have some Honeypaw Langstroth-specific mouse guards to fit, and we'll do that over the next week or so, so look out for the video showing those. I recently had a number of emails asking advice about feeding at this time of the year. Mostly they were asking if they should be feeding at all. Feeding syrup, what kind of syrup, or if it should be fondant. It's always difficult to be specific as different beekeepers have a variety of ways they feed, and perhaps more importantly when they feed, so I can only really talk about the way that I feed my bees and why. 
I start feeding my bees in September, just after the first month of the treatments, aiming to have completed feeding by the end of the month to coincide with the local ivy pollen and nectar flow. I like to think the feed mixes well with the ivy and makes it more bee friendly over the winter months. It also means that feeding a little earlier than the ivy flow fills up the outer frame cells that have become available as the brood nest shrinks back. This then is liquid feed for the bees to enjoy later in the season. The ivy nectar, which granulates firmly, is then held closer to the brood nest and hopefully the warmth of the bees keeps it softer and more easy to consume. With feeding complete by mid-October at the latest, I can feel confident the bees have plenty of stores to see them through two or three months at least. But remember, not all colonies are created equal. Some will be large, hungry colonies requiring a great deal of food, where others might be considered frugal and appear to barely touch the feed you've so lovingly given them. This is where little judgment and hefting are called for, and I've talked about hefting before. No doubt we'll return to it again in a couple of months' time. If you feel the need to add more food from now and through the colder months until spring arrives, switch from feeding liquid syrup to fondant. The bees will find it ever more difficult to evaporate excess water from syrups fed now, and higher water content in feeds is sure to lead to either moulds growing in it or bees developing dysentery and the like. Fondant, especially those made specifically for bees, will do a great job at sustaining the colony over winter, and they're relatively inexpensive, especially if you only have a couple of hives. Better to spend £20 on fondant over Christmas than have to buy a new nucleus colony of bees in the spring for £250 or so. No doubt I'll come back to fondant at some point, so if you have any questions, drop me a line and I can answer them in another podcast. As I mentioned in the intro today, it's been another tricky time with the pickup, and I've been getting the trailer renovated for next season. I've had an appalling year, actually, with the Ranger. It seems to have given me one challenge after another. It gets to the point where you start to think, am I throwing good money after bad? I've had new gaiters fitted, a new clutch, new tyres, and a new turbo and intercooler. It's been rather expensive, and it was the turbo that's been causing me more issues again recently. Another oil leak, diagnosed as too much pressure in the engine, but subsequently diagnosed as a faulty turbo. And I'm really not mechanically minded, so I don't really understand. But the turbo was replaced in May this year, so I've taken it back to the garage that did the repair, and to be fair to them, they've checked it out and agreed that it appears to be faulty. A new one is coming, and we'll be fitting it next week, but the turbo people want the old one back to test to see if it's faulty. I've no idea what will happen if they come back and say that they can't find a fault, but we should park that particular question and deal with it if it arises. The trailer, on the other hand, is something I knew would give me trouble. I've not had need for it for a few years, and I lent it to a friend. He subsequently hasn't used it much, and it's been sat in a paddock, gradually rusting away. With the increase in pollination jobs I'm doing, I really needed to get it back on the road, so it was moved over to the workshop where I have a team of experts, better known as Pete, Pete's brother-in-law William, and me, stripping it down and rebuilding it. And a bit like the truck, we're getting to the point where scrapping and buying a new one might have been the better option. I'm going to document the work in a blog post on my website, so do take a look at it, but I'll post regular pictures to Patreon for everyone to see as we're going along. But so far, we've stripped off all the major parts. Of course, when I say we've stripped off the parts, I mean Pete and William have done it. I just pay the bills. 
So wheels and tyres and hubs have all been removed, all mostly rusted and seized. The rotten plywood flooring has gone to reveal a significant amount of rusted and rotten steelwork. The hitch that fixed the trailer to the tow bar was broken and needs renovating. And to be honest, all you can see of the subframe is rust. So all of that will need to be brushed away, treated and painted again. But for me, I'm really pleased that we're able to repair it and not just throw it away and buy a new one. We seem to have lost the ability to repair things and seem to be encouraged to forever upgrade or replace with new kit. Thank goodness for Pete and William. I'm not sure I have the skills to begin to repair my trailer, but I'm actually quite excited about it. Sad, I know. But we'll be more capable of moving bees safely next season and that's bound to help with developing the business. All I have to do now is fix the Ranger and get the tow bar fitted. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for all your comments and support. If you're not yet familiar with Patreon, do catch up with more of my beekeeping journey by checking out the continually growing content list on my creator page, www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. Have a great week and thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast. I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Sweet.